Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 143, The Third Reich. Once he finally achieved actual power, Adolf Hitler was able to secure an almost unassailable position in Germany with frightening speed. All the factions and intrigues that had so deadlocked the Weimar government were swept away inside a year. And by the middle of 1934, Hitler could very well think of himself Fuhrer of Germany as a whole and not just the National Socialist Movement. There was still Hindenburg, but we'll get to him towards the end of this episode. The shift in direction within Germany was seismic, even if Hitler was simply picking up where his three predecessors had left off in building an authoritarian regime. But whatever those men had in mind, Hitler's dreams were far grander and terrible. The vague notion of eastern expansion and settling scores with the West after a period of rearmament might have been shared by all in the far right, but to Hitler, those ideas were his entire reason to exist. There was nothing vague with Hitler's vision. There would absolutely be a war, and sooner rather than later. Others might have predicted this as a likely outcome. Hitler chased it as a mission. A war would test the mettle of his Germany, refine its best qualities, and strip away the weaknesses. It would make his destined race into warriors and killers, perfect tools for the world to come. A world where the hand-picked racial enemies of this new Germany would not merely be persecuted, no, they would be eliminated entirely. The German race would be purified not just by conflict, but by the elimination of the parts of humanity the Nazis deemed inferior. And where the conservatives would have set up an authoritarian regime that worked with society as it was already, Hitler desired to build an instrument of not just war, but of blind obedience as quickly as possible. Hitler was far from gifted with prophecy, but he correctly surmised that a runaway rearmament program would run into trouble by the end of the 30s. More on that when I return to Germany and actually cover the reorganization of the economy to support that rearmament. He figured there'd be a recession when spending became too lopsided on weapons. What would happen then, he couldn't predict or control. A depression had brought him to power, and a new one later might compromise his vision. And his vision was no less than the conquest of Central and Eastern Europe right up to the Ural Mountains, which would create the territorial foundation of a vast colonial state that would allow Germany the resources and population base to compete with the United States which to Hitler was the epicenter of the Grand Jewish Conspiracy. That a conquest of that magnitude would also mean that the rest of Europe would be dominated by him went without saying. But he had to strike quickly before the economic window closed. Germany would only be able to spend so much before the wheels fell off, and by the end of the decade, the other powers of the world would surely be catching up. But getting weapons into the hands of soldiers was only part of the trouble he had to get people on board to be his soldiers. Hitler was set to embark on a war that would be far more expansive than World War I, a conflict where Germany had been in a far better material position. And in that case, the Second Reich had fallen to pieces when widespread internal discontent brought the regime down. Hitler needed people above all to be obedient to him and his new state. A lot of older histories like to portray Nazi Germany as some kind of Swiss watch of a nation, everything having a place and purpose and working in perfect synchronization. That's not the reality at all. The nation was a redundant mess of overlapping and competing responsibilities. 
but efficiency wasn't the strict requirement. Compliance was. So today we'll be looking into how the Nazis began morphing Germany into a state capable of following the worst orders imaginable, which on the surface might seem like an insurmountable problem. During the period of fair elections, the Nazis had only managed to secure a little over the third of the electorate's support at their peak. Hardly a ringing endorsement to send the entire nation into the meat grinder of war. But keep in mind that while Hitler never received majority support, that didn't mean the Nazis weren't considered a perfectly valid second option by voters who preferred more establishment conservatives. His first cabinet that was established at the end of January 1933 was seen by many as a perfect configuration, combining the fire of the Nazis with the temperate and technocratic influence of men like Papen and Hugenberg. By then, much of Germany also wanted an end to the political chaos, and public opinion praised the crackdown on the left. That is, of course, unless you were part of that third of the country that counted itself as supporting the proletarian parties, but the non-resistance of the KPD, SPD, and the trade unions pretty much convinced the rank and file of the left that they'd have to make their peace with the Nazis some way, somehow. Hitler, meanwhile, enjoyed the praise of the masses in the other two-thirds of Germany and reaped that praise again in the summer of 1934 when he crushed his own SA. But praise, that was all well and good. The approval so readily gained by decisive action could be lost as crisis conditions passed. Hitler needed not well wishes, but the very bodies and souls of his countrymen. They had to accept him as Fuhrer and obey him without question. And that's kind of the trick that separates Hitler from most any other dictator, that he created a state that would cling to power even as the walls and ceilings came down on top of everyone. Just ask Mussolini, that kind of thing ain't easy. The process began in the immediate aftermath of the Reichstag fire and the passing of the Enabling Act. I mentioned last week that Hitler intended to rule through the various government ministries in Berlin in a centralized fashion so that he could issue direct orders. This process was referred to as coordination, which was to say all government functions came under Nazi control. And in replacing the old system, Hitler preferred a somewhat redundant structure. Supreme power would rest with him, and through him, the various national ministries would issue directions and orders from Berlin, and pointedly not through the Nazi party apparatus. The old federal structure of Germany would remain on paper, but be effectively meaningless. Instead of the imbalanced states within Germany holding regional influence, the nation was given a new layer of organization in the form of the Gau. They were effectively new provinces and were divided based on regions and population sizes, so no power imbalance between them like the Prussian state had been compared to the other old states. This is where the Nazi party did come in. The Gau already existed in the party, as each region was assigned a Gauleiter. Now, instead of just managing party business in their Gau, each Gauleiter would additionally manage local government within their turf as well. The civil servants on the ground found themselves in the unenviable position of answering both to their Berlin ministry and their Gauleiter. Preference would be given, of course, to Berlin, but they effectively had two bosses. It was a system that both prevented an ambitious party leader from forming a power base capable of challenging Hitler and still kept the bosses in the NSDAP happy and influential. And the Gauleiters form a kind of club of party princes, 32 in total, although that number would rise to 42 as Germany expanded. The Gauleiters would jealously guard their privileges, and for good reason. Their Gau were sources of wealth that allowed for both their own personal enrichment 
as well as an opportunity to build networks of beneficial relationships within and outside the Nazi party. And since they were beholden first and foremost to the party, it was difficult to go against them as long as they stayed in Hitler's favor. Now, this was all at the upper echelons of political life. Coordination demanded compliance on even pettier levels. And I'm not just talking about mayorships or town councils, although they certainly came under scrutiny. Any officials that were deemed politically unreliable would be dismissed, and even harmless public figures would be subject to intimidation and warnings about the consequences if they did not follow the Nazi line. Social clubs were no different either, even ones that had zero political connections. Gardening associations, rifle clubs, choir groups, veterans associations, everybody had to check in with their local party official and confirm that they were being good boys and girls and that their activities were strictly in keeping with National Socialist thought, or whatever was coming out of Berlin at that given time. One German observed you couldn't form a bowling team without being coordinated. Naturally, this kind of control extended into the intelligentsia of the country as well. If you came from an acceptable background, meaning non-Jewish and non-leftist, you could expect your career to be favored. Nazis loved to encourage the arts, so long as it conformed to their vision and was being produced by those artists that they found acceptable. Actors, writers, and musicians all over the country found themselves with adoring patrons within the state, creating a comforting surety in their careers. Jewish artists, on the other hand, were quickly barred from performances and publishing, their work suppressed, and that led most to, you know, leave the country by virtue of needing to earn a living somewhere in their chosen profession. You would think that their like-minded, non-Jewish counterparts would follow them either out of solidarity or general disgust, and some did, but most of those the state found acceptable settled into a cozy relationship with the regime. The feelings of national rejuvenation, unity, and the embarking upon of a great adventure should not be underestimated by a modern listener who knows better. The days of Weimar, especially those last ones, were so dispiriting that many of the intelligentsia were in full favor of supporting National Socialism. Modernity, as they understood it, had failed, and the almost spiritual promise of the Nazi ideology seemingly held the remedy. Philosophers, writers, teachers, and more all put themselves at the disposal of Hitler. Suddenly, the well-to-do of the world, and not just the Julius Strikers, were speaking of establishing order through their German racial identity, subsuming their individualism through violence and blind obedience to Hitler in order to secure the glorification of the German people. The corrupting foreign influences of the 20s, looking decidedly at the American, and therefore in Nazi eyes the Jewish ones, would be purged. An idealized form of traditional German life would be conjured through the crucible of this struggle. As early as May 10, 1933, the large-scale book burnings started. On that evening, 20,000 books from libraries all around Berlin that were deemed at odds with Nazism were gathered and set ablaze, as Goebbels proclaimed the event a repudiation of the November 1918 revolution. The event was started by a student union that wished to prove itself more Nazified than a rival group, but they were quickly joined by local officials and cops, with the dire spectacle becoming a public event. And as the nation's thinkers and storytellers lined up to join the movement, the cult of personality surrounding Hitler solidified itself among the common people. I covered this Fuhrer cult last season, how it had been started by an early Nazi member named Dietrich Eckhart, 
who saw a potential in Hitler for someone that people could subsume their will to. Which, of course, was ironic, seeing as how Hitler was a personally distant person who was chronically lazy and incapable of taking action until circumstances had backed him into a corner. But that was all Hitler the man. Hitler the Fuhrer projected an image of strength and composure, with a powerful speaking voice and unnervingly piercing blue eyes. As a leader, he was incorruptible and fixated on his mission. The mission, people assumed, was to make Germany united at home and respected abroad, and most Germans pointedly ignored the promises of future violence that his speeches and writings carried. Oftentimes, they were dismissed as worst-case scenarios if other nations couldn't reconcile themselves to Germany's greatness. How they expected Hitler to do all that he promised without massive violence, I have no idea, but as we saw during the 20s, Germans had a penchant for deluding themselves as to what was possible. And Hitler himself could be personally charming on an individual level when he really wanted to. Something observed by his inner circle was that countless times he met with crowds, smiled and glad-handed, stirred the spirits of men, flattered the ladies, and then when he was done, he would retire to his chambers and disappear within himself. But that last part really wasn't advertised, so as people got to know him, they only saw the extroverted go-getter, which was all a welcome change from leaders that Germans were used to. A theme of last season was that the 20s produced demoralizingly few charismatic leaders that could really mobilize the masses. And in Germany, leaders were either liberals like Stressmen that worked through committees and backroom consensus building, or overt elitists like Poppen and Hindenburg. Hitler was a younger man, with energy and vibrancy to spare, who seemed self-assured in his vision, and came from humble roots that marked him as closer to the people. Which itself was important. Remember that National Socialism very much so did not advocate the elimination of the class system. Rather, every German would have a part to play in the glorification of the greater community of the nation, and abuses of power between social strata were to be resolved via a personal relationship with the nation's leaders, which was most often expressed in terms of the masses personally being connected to Hitler. Part of their obedience to the Fuhrer came from the presumption that he was one of them and had their interests at heart. Now, all of this kind of thinking was not 100% universal and would have to grow over time, but more than enough of the population went in for it that the rest really had no choice but to fall in line and join them. And that was just the adults. Children and teenagers would not be ignored either. And yes, this brings me to the Nazi Boy Scouts, the Hitler Youth. The Hitler Youth had actually been around in various forms for a while, dating back to 1922, and it was hardly unique in its first decade. Major political groups all across the spectrum had their own youth groups. The purpose was both to try and catch ideological converts early or carry on a family's own internal politics to the next generation through creating an engaging environment where youngsters could socialize. Like the Nazi party, the Hitler Youth was a fairly minor organization up until the Nazis started seeing electoral success. The basis of that boost in support to the HY was similar to the rest of the country. Teenagers looked around during the Great Depression and saw their futures being stripped away by the folly of international markets that they had no control over. Hitler, to them, promised a complete break from the cycles of economic misery that had plagued Germany since the end of World War I. The group would conduct itself much like the scouts and other youth groups of the day. Uh, there would be sport, camping, general outdoorsy stuff. 
then there would be the Nazi twist on the, these things, like pushing how Germans should be physically superior to Jews and non-Germans, and that their fitness was necessary for future wars. Distinctions between the members were broken down, ostensibly not a bad thing, but it was done in the service of ensuring that they derived their identities from the National Socialist ideology, which, yes, once again goes back to being obedient to Hitler. The youth are always vulnerable to romanticized notions of sacrifice at the best of times, and it was deliberately cultivated within the HY. They were taught who to obey, who to hate, and how to act on that knowledge. The army loved it because it produced young men ready and able for military service. The leader of the group from 1931 to 1940 was Balder von Scherach, who was kind of an oddity in the Nazi hierarchy. He came from a minor noble family hailing from Saxony, although his father was born in the United States and actually fought in the Civil War, even standing as an honor guard at Abraham Lincoln's funeral. His father also married in America into a prominent Philadelphia family. When they moved to Germany, the elder Scherach took up a position as a theater director of the court in the city of Weimar. It was a comfortable existence until the end of World War I. Then the elder Chirac lost his job, and Boulder's older brother killed himself out of sheer despair over his sunken prospects. This led the younger Chirac to explore more radical politics. By the time he was in university in the late 20s, he was well-positioned to push the National Socialist cause among his fellow students at just the moment the Nazis were gaining traction. Never let it be said that student organizing doesn't get you noticed, because Chirac's successes in getting university students to vote for the Nazis got him noticed by Hitler personally, and he made the young man, just 24 in 1931, leader of the National Hitler Youth. He definitely got in when the getting was good. In under two years' time, Hitler would be chancellor, and after the crackdowns of the spring and summer 1933, youth groups across the country started to be banned across Germany. The KPD and SPD ones were obviously the first to go, but they were followed by other political parties' own groups. Strictly religious youth groups would be the last holdouts, but even by 1936, they had also been wound down. Chirac would be the leader of the only permitted youth movement in the nation. And speaking of the religious side of Germany, there was also the matter of reconciling the various Christian communities with the new ideology. It shouldn't come as a surprise that most parts of National Socialism went against Christian doctrine, or at very least looked upon adherence to religious ideals as a conflict of loyalties. Then, of course, there were those Nazis who bought into a German identity more closely rooted in old pagan ideals, and held Christianity to be a weak-spirited corruption to be purged. One couldn't expect future conquerors to turn the other cheek, after all. Hitler, for his part, preferred to keep the peace with the nation's religious institutions, correctly surmising that if he allowed them a free hand to hold their services and celebrations, that they would voluntarily withdraw from any political challenges. He himself was not religious, although he fell back on religious rhetoric on occasion, especially when railing against the nation's Jews. That, though, was merely tactics. Hitler believed that given enough time, that Christianity would simply die out, especially after the victorious Greater Germany was established and the people were, were presented with a new cult of tangible victory in the material world. The biggest question mark concerning Nazism's approach to religion was the Catholic Church. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, the Zentrum was the political party dominated by the Catholic Church and was formed with the original mission of combating Otto von Bismarck's anti-Catholic policies a mission that carried on in the ensuing generations. 
The rule of Hitler, though, was far more demanding than the one of Bismarck, and political independence could not be accepted. Sensitive to public opinion, though, and also likely indifferent, seeing as how he hailed from a majority Catholic area himself, Hitler was uninterested in hounding Catholics as much as many of the old elites had been. The way he saw it, leaving them in peace would lead them to grow indolent, allowing the Nazis to undermine their position peacefully over the course of years. Sure, the fact that they had a chain of authority leading back to Rome was concerning, but that's why he had Poppin strike up the Reich Concordat with the Vatican that set acceptable ground rules. Namely, the church would stay out of politics while Catholics were able to practice without harassment, and the clergy was able to stay in contact with the larger church. There were some rocky patches. As I mentioned earlier, the Catholic youth groups were shut down in 1936 in violation of the Concordat. Catholic schools also came under pressure, with parents being encouraged to switch their kids to secular schools, but they were never dissolved. And by 1935, the Gestapo was feeling bold enough that they started going after Catholic clergymen that they could dig up dirt on, whether it was corruption or sexual offenses. By the mid-1940s, tens of thousands of clergymen had been hit with charges, although almost half of these were for minor offenses that warranted only warnings or fines. Even with these aggressions, the truce held, and the Catholic Church, for its part, encouraged support and cooperation with the state. What might have been a more vexing problem long-term were actually the Protestants. At least with the Catholics, Hitler could understand them. They were big, they were unified, and they had a clear chain of command. The Protestants, though, well, in Germany, they were 28 separate churches organized very loosely under the umbrella of the German Evangelical Church, ostensibly led by a Reich bishop. Their preference for regionalism and nitpicky differences that kept them apart aroused only contempt from Hitler. But there was the fact that these churches were connected to the state. After all, they had been set up as regional churches for whatever local duchy held sway, and those connections continued into Imperial Germany and the Weimar Republic. This presented an opportunity in the eyes of some Nazis to seize control of these churches. Hitler himself envisioned uniting them into a truly national church, so as to make the job of controlling them much more streamlined. Problem was that his candidate for Reich Bishop, Ludwig Müller, was rejected by the churches towards the end of May 1933, and instead they selected a candidate that supported the continuation of church autonomy. Hitler did not take this little act of defiance well. He forced the winner to resign and started sacking much of the opposition from their positions. After forcing a new vote on September 27th, Mueller won that time around. But in the process, the German Protestants were badly split, and Mueller himself alienated many of his own supporters by going after the Jewish Old Testament and trying to reframe Jesus in a more Germanic hero light. By the end of 1933, Hitler had lost interest in trying to corral the Protestants, and only interfered in church matters from then on when he felt his interests as Fuhrer were at stake. Any other church business was only a source of irritation to him. If the eventual dissolution of German Christianity was expected to be a slow and gradual process, there was one pillar of old Germany that was expected to go at pretty much any minute. President Paul von Hindenburg was by the spring of 1934, entering the terminal phase in his fight with lung cancer. He retired to his East Prussian estates in June, and by the end of July, news was broken to the public that their dear president wasn't coming back to Berlin. Hindenburg, despite his own lack of public presence, was the only other personality cult active in Germany that could compete with Hitler's own. He was the last field marshal, the champion of traditional Germany, 
the guy who lost World War I, but it really, truly wasn't his fault. Idealized since his victory at Tannenberg back at the start of World War I, he had been a household name since. And as president, he still commanded the army and still held the power to depose chancellors, issue decrees, and call new elections. In short, he was the one guy in all of Germany that Hitler still treated with any amount of propriety. On August 1st, 1934, Hitler paid his last visit to Hindenburg. The president reportedly was out of his senses and mistook Hitler for the Kaiser, addressing him as Majesty. Needless to say, there wasn't much actually discussed. That day, Hitler arranged for the cabinet to approve an edict stipulating that upon the death of Hindenburg that there would be no new election, and that the powers of the president would be combined with that of the chancellor. Hitler argued that the presidency by that time was bound personally with Hindenburg and that none could replace him. Such a touching thought. Rather, Hitler would afterwards be known as Fuhrer and Reich Chancellor. He wouldn't have to wait long, as by the next day, Hindenburg was dead. The first act taken afterwards was later that very day. Generals Blomberg and Reichenau were supportive of Hitler becoming the Reichswehr's commander-in-chief, but wanted to drag Hitler closer to the army. Their solution, prepared in advance of Hindenburg dying, wouldn't play out as they expected and provided the armed forces the lamest excuse to act as some of the most servile war criminals history has ever seen. Immediately after Hindenburg died, the pair ordered the military to swear loyalty oath personally to Adolf Hitler. The idea was to tempt Hitler into favoring the loyal military over the Nazi party, but resulted only in providing cover for the future Wehrmacht to blindly follow Hitler's orders without question. In the case of Blumberg, it's doubtful he fully understood what he was dealing with, while Reichenau was Nazi enough to actually enjoy the idea of exactly what he was dealing with. Some of the officers thought it was a bad idea, but in the end, they all took the oath. The German army, that institution dating back to the great elector of Brandenburg in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, was now fully subordinated to a madman. On August 4th, Hindenburg was interned in a tomb prepared at the monument to the victory at Tannenberg in East Prussia. You can't visit it. The monument was demolished during the German retreat of 1944, and Hindenburg's remains were evacuated. But in 1934, it was an impressive propaganda moment. Very changing of the guard. Hitler bid the field marshal farewell with the closing line, and now enter thou upon Valhalla. Which was inappropriate. Hindenburg was not the fan of Wagner that Hitler was. But Hindenburg didn't matter anymore. He was dead. This great stocky warlord that had loomed over Hitler for years was finally gone, all his powers were seized, and the military completely fell in line. On August 19th, a vote was held for the people to approve the assumption of Hindenburg's powers, and the fake results came in at 90% saying, yeah. There was no longer anything left to stand in Hitler's way. He took a victory lap in the form of the 6th Nazi Party Congress at Nuremberg from September 5th to the 10th. The party congresses had transformed into gigantic rallies, and 700,000 people were in attendance on that occasion, forming a gargantuan brown mass, bedecked with flags, banners, and standards of the Nazi party. By night, 152 powerful searchlights were lined up and turned on facing directly upwards, seemingly creating a wall of light. The effect was designed by the up-and-coming architect specialist of the Nazi party, Albert Speer. The grand speech is before hundreds of thousands of chanting and cheering faithful was an impressive sight, and this rally was the subject of Leni Riefenstahl's seminal propaganda film, Triumph of the Will. Hitler would never again face checks on his power from within Germany, 
and he could move forward secure in his position as undisputed Fuhrer. I am deliberately leaving you with that mental image of the Nazis at their most cinema-perfect, as this concludes this mini-series on the fall of Weimar and the rise of the Nazis. It is a frustrating story, to say the least, but I think the lesson from it to take away as a warning is simply not to take resistance to obvious evil as a given. Every step of the way, the Germans, who were initially unsupportive of the Nazis, came to make their peace with them instead of fighting, and even those on the left who should have fought simply made excuses while everything they had built was destroyed. Everyone feared being the ones to start a civil war, while the Nazis were the most willing to blow the whole thing up, which during the crisis years of the Depression rendered the whole system of Weimar inoperable. Not that the conservatives minded too much, they wanted the Republic done away with as well. But if there was one thing the establishment lacked, it was imagination. The imagination to first offer their own bold ideas of how to save Germany, and then the imagination to consider what they were really dealing with in the Nazis. Whether it was Bruning or Schleicher or Poppen, they never understood the hungry drive they contended with, and all their scheming wound up benefiting the very men they professed to hate and look down upon. Bruning wound up in exile, Schleicher was murdered, and Poppen was eventually shuffled off to an embassy job. Poppen will still pop up here and there, notably getting tried at Nuremberg, but this miniseries is when he was at his most important. When we return to Germany later this season, we'll be covering the German rearmament program and the Nazis' ahem, assertive foreign policy. You may have noticed that this miniseries stopped being about economics pretty quickly as the political situation went haywire. Well, economic history fans, don't worry, because the entire German economy was going to be rewired to support rearmament and expansion, so it'll double as an economic history too. Really, the entire history of Germany from here on out is just going to be getting ready for a war, which is very easy and straightforward for me. But for now, I'll actually be leaving Europe and moving on to Japan. Where we last left them, the fragile democracy built up during the Taisho era had stagnated, with nationalists on the rise and the emperor increasingly disinterested in ruling through democratic institutions. Coupled with disillusionment with internationalist cooperation, Japan would take the opportunity of the global depression to change course and return to direct imperialism, which will include its conquest of Manchuria. Join me next week as we start that series, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.